Hello, Katawantok. Here come the Pacific waves from RNZ Pacific, me, Koroi Hawkins. Coming up... Our country is no longer fearful or concerned about this issue. The president of the FSM says he trusts Japan's plans to discharge nuclear wastewater into the Pacific Ocean will be safe. Also... The US has been ranked as the top power in Asia for all five editions, and there's not good evidence that China is actually closing that gap. An Australian think tank says its data shows perceptions of China's growing power and influence in the Indo-Pacific are often exaggerated, and... And I think uh, if we exact some kind of uh, physical punishment, physical pain... It's a deterrent. A controversial caning bill is before Guam's Senate and it's stirring up public debate. The President of the Federated States of Micronesia has expressed his support of Japan's plans to release treated nuclear wastewater into the Pacific Ocean. More than one million tonnes of radioactive wastewater is to be released over around four decades starting this year. David Panuelo's approval contradicts the alarm bells ringing across the Pacific over the issue. Lydia Lewis has been covering developments. The President of the Federated States of Micronesia says he is no longer fearful or concerned about Japan's nuclear wastewater release into the Pacific Ocean. Our country is no longer fearful or concerned about this issue and now has deep trust in Japan's intention and technological capabilities in not harming our shared oceanic assets and resources. David Panuelo's statement follows a bilateral meeting with Japan's Prime Minister Kishida Fumio in Tokyo last week. The Pacific Island countries through the Pacific Islands Forum, we have one strong position because the ocean is the life source of our nations. We derive our livelihood from the ocean. Japan's plan is to release more than one million tonnes of radioactive wastewater into the Pacific Ocean over a period of around 40 years, starting this year. It says the discharge needs to take place in order for them to decommission the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant following the 2011 nuclear disaster. One of the arguments opposing the move has been, if it is safe to dump the wastewater in the ocean, then why do they not dump it on land in Japan? But Tokyo Electric Power Company, the owners of the damaged power plant, say years of discussions have boiled down to this. Over the period of six and a half years, and they have come to a conclusion that of all uh, these alternatives, discharge into the sea is most realistic method. In other words, this is happening. Japan's plan has been a source of great concern among Pacific leaders. The Secretary General of the Pacific Islands Forum, Henry Puna, has been particularly vocal about it. All we want to really is, you know, to be in a position where our experts can say, okay, look, the release is harmless, it can go ahead, or There are some issues that we need further discussion and further scientific research with Japan. And then, you know, that's it. But, you know, so far, unfortunately, Japan has not been cooperating. David Panuelo's backing of Japan's plans came just days out from a crucial meeting this week between the Pacific Islands Forum and Japan to try and iron out what Pacific leaders see as a lack of scientific proof the release is safe. The forum's independent experts want the release delayed until Japan presents proof the ocean and Pacific people will be safe. 
we immediately noticed problems with the data that the panel has considered to be serious red flags. Non-proliferation and high-energy physics scientist Dr. Ferenc Dalnoki Veres is one of the experts on the forum panel. The panel has found that some of TEPCO's sample extraction has been inadequate, incomplete, and at times inconsistent and even biased. While Panuelo did not go into detail as to why he has been able to perform a U-turn, he did have this to say: "We have been satisfied with the information that we have been given, but this is not to say that we are stopping. We continue to consult with the government of Japan and other partners." However, he stressed the need to make sure the dumping of the wastewater meets requirements so that it is safe. I believe that accountable government will not do the thing to harm our shared Pacific Ocean, and so I will stop there by saying that we will continue consultations individually or bilaterally and through the Pacific Islands Forum. The meeting between the forum and Japan has been set down for February seventh. The authors of an annual report on power and influence in the Indo-Pacific say their data shows the hype around China's growing influence in the region is often overblown. Since 2018, the Lowy Institute, an Australian international policy think tank, has published an Asia Power Index ranking 26 countries according to the power and influence they wield in the Indo-Pacific region. Its fifth edition was released on Sunday and shows the United States again firmly on top, with second-placed China only outranking it in two out of eight thematic measures. I spoke with the project lead for the Asia Power Index, Susanna Patton, who says their interactive tool disproves some commonly held views of the state of play in the region. She began by explaining how the rankings are determined. So the Asia Power Index is a data-driven assessment of the distribution of power in the Asian region. So it covers 26 countries, from Pakistan in the west through to the United States in the east,、um, and it measures power in eight different dimensions, focusing on the resources that countries have and the influence that they exert in the region around them. And just give us that.、Um, maybe let's start with the breakdown as well.、Uh, what are the what are the most powerful? I think is it top ten or top twelve that you've、um, had as your sort of top bunch of of countries? Sure. So what the index shows is that the U.S. and China are by far the most powerful countries in Asia. So those are the two countries that we would say are superpowers.、Um, and then below that. Um, we're really looking at、um, a range of countries who we would call middle powers. So Japan and India are the next most powerful countries, followed by Russia, Australia, South Korea,、um, and then there's a range of countries in Southeast Asia who are also middle powers, and a range of countries who we would call minor powers. So thinking about much smaller countries. Um, such as Laos and Brunei and Papua New Guinea, which is also included in the index.、Um, obviously, for our, our audience as well,、um, where does New Zealand, where does Australia sit in this、uh, index? Sure. So Australia is ranked sixth in the index, ahead of South Korea, which might surprise a lot of people that Australia is so highly ranked, while New Zealand is ranked thirteenth. Obviously, New Zealand is a small country, so we wouldn't necessarily expect it to rank more highly. And in fact, what New Zealand's score shows is that it has 
very high performance in some of the influence indicators. So that suggests that New Zealand actually punches above its weight in several categories. Um, uh, surprising for me, just listening to, to what we've talked about so far, is, is Russia being a middle power? Yeah, that's right. Many people would be surprised by how well Russia performs in the Asia Power Index. It's ranked as, as number five. Um, but Russia's power is actually very lopsided. So it's heavily skewed by its military capability because it's the third most powerful military in the Asia Power Index. And in other categories, its influence is quite negligible. So it actually scores worse for economic relationships in Asia than New Zealand. So it's a very unbalanced power. Um, interestingly, you're talking about like the getting into the differences in the different measurements. Um, China outperforming US in only one indicator, I understand, in your index? In two, yeah, in two indicators. So um, China outperforms um, the US in the area of economic relationships in Asia, and that's really China's key advantage. So it does incredibly well in that. And the US, because it hasn't really had the same set of proactive policies to grow its trade and investment with a lot of countries in the region, um, really underperforms in that measure. Last year in the index, much more closely matched on this measure, but China also overtook the US in terms of diplomatic influence. And what that really reflects is that China's outreach to the region tends to be um, much more concerted with a wider range of powers. So if we compare the diplomacy of the US and China, the US tends to focus very deeply on a smaller range of partners, so its traditional allies, whereas China tends to be um, much broader and engage with a wider range of powers in a more shallow way. Now, um, you mentioned also, I'm looking at uh, COVID having impacts on, on some of the rankings. Yeah, probably if you can give us the more telling, well, not telling, but I guess the more, more evident impacts of COVID on the rankings this time around. Yeah, so the impact of COVID, I think, has been felt on all countries in the power index, but not necessarily at the same time. So, for example, we all know that the United States had a terrible year with COVID in 2020 and so its power declined significantly in that year. Whereas China, of course, has had much more prolonged lockdowns and border closures than other countries in the region. And so we really see that affecting China's power in this edition of the Asia Power Index because its connectivity, so its connections with the rest of Asia through things like people exchanges, business exchanges, cultural ties, all of that really atrophied. For many other countries, the impact of the pandemic has been in terms of their geoeconomic resilience. So many countries came out of the pandemic actually more dependent on a primary trade partner and with less diversified exports um, and economic relationships with the region. Again, um, kudos to the team on quite a user-friendly interface, very interesting bits and pieces all through that um, once people get access to it and, and are able to go through themselves. As a tool, how would this be used or how would you imagine or how have you designed this to be used and for for what ways would it be useful to the countries in the index but also those interested in uh, the Indo-Pacific region? So I think the, the index is primarily a tool for understanding the distribution of power. So it puts some evidence behind a lot of the assumptions that people often make about the balance of power in Asia. So many people will make broad sweeping statements like 
China is taking over the U.S. role and the U.S. is, is down and out and this kind of thing. And the power index really is able to disprove some of those um, some of those assumptions that people make. But it can also be used in other ways. And one of the things that people can do in the interactive is, for example, assign their own weightings to particular categories. So, for example, if you happen to believe that cultural influence is more important than defence relationships, then you can change that assumption in the interactive and see what the results show. So it's a really flexible tool that I think often serves as an opening point for a conversation about the nature of the region that we live in. That's so interesting. So m- maybe um, to end, shall we go through w- what are some of the top myths that were busted through looking at this data and what are some things that have been confirmed that are commonly said statements about power in the Indo-Pacific region? So a couple of myths. I think one myth, um, as I already mentioned, is that China is inevitably going to overtake the United States. So the US has been ranked as the top power in Asia for all five editions of the Asia Power Index. And there's not good evidence that China is actually closing that gap. So the US still remains comfortably ahead and has durable advantages in terms of the strength of its own economy, its demographic outlook, and so forth. Another myth that I think is is interesting in this context is the role that middle powers like Japan and India are going to play because uh, many people, especially in the United States and Australia, have a view that we're in a multipolar region where Japan and India will play a bigger part in balancing China's influence. But what the power index actually suggests is that both Japan and India face some real challenges in exerting that kind of regional influence. In Japan's case, because it is in long-term relative economic decline and in India's case because its influence is really quite limited to its own neighbourhood in South Asia and doesn't extend far beyond that into, say, Southeast Asia or the Pacific. And some some commonly held beliefs that are confirmed through the index? It's a good question. I think, um, you know, one of the things that comes through in the index, for example, is that among Southeast Asian countries... None of them are in the top tier of powers in Asia. Um, All are much smaller. So Indonesia and Singapore are within the the top 10 powers. Um, But for many of the other countries, their ability to exert power in Asia is, 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 is in fact quite limited. A bill to introduce caning as a form of punishment is stirring public debate on Guam. Formally introduced to Guam Senate on the 27th of January, the bill proposes judicial caning as punishment for people convicted of violent crimes. The bill's father, Senator Dwayne San Nicholas, who was elected in the U.S. Territory's gubernatorial elections last year, says caning will curb Guam's growing crime rate. Caning is considered to be inhumane by 173 countries in the United Nations. Our reporter, Finau Funua, spoke with Senator San Nicholas about his bill and why he thinks caning is not an inappropriate form of punishment. This bill you're introducing in Guam, could you describe it for our audience? Our, our island has been uh, you know, starting to go wayward and it's, we, we're, we're experiencing a lot of crime, especially violent crimes. And we, I promised during my campaign that, uh, you know, that I, I, I would address the crime issue. And so I searched... Uh, pretty much the whole world looking for, you know, what what we could use uh, here on Guam. 
and uh, I found the answer in Singapore, uh, corporal punishment for, for criminals. This um, caning, is it for specific crimes? Uh, yeah, well, what we did was we left, uh, we left it open for the judiciary to decide, you know, what kind of, uh, how they would like to apply it. However, what we did was we added um, a provision in the law where violent crimes would receive the maximum amount of caning, which is 24. And why do you think this is more effective than uh, incarceration and heavy fines? Well, you know, we, uh, what, what I think uh, for, for me is, uh, I think, um, you know, the perpetrators, the criminals, uh, you know, that's what they have a lot of. There's a lot of time on their hands. In our, in our own criminal system, uh, especially in our incarceration, there is really no form of, uh, of rehabilitation. You can put somebody in, uh, in jail and uh, let, let him uh, linger there for a while, but he really isn't learning his lesson. And I think uh, if we exact some kind of uh, physical punishment, physical pain, it's a deterrent. It would help deter crime. You know, people would think twice before they do something. And uh, it would also help cut down on our, on our prison population as we see it right now. I think we're about double the capacity of, of our, of our uh, allotted uh, jail space. What's your response mm-hmm. to, the, to the critics of your bill? Well, I've always mentioned that I'm always open. I was, I'm always open to suggestions, and, and still to this day, I still haven't gotten any good uh, suggestions on how we can move forward and, and preventing crime and, and exacting a harsher penalty on, uh, on criminals. What we've been doing in the past is we constantly give them time. We, give them, we, we let them serve long prison sentences, but why does our crime continue to rise? And so, you know, there's, there's something that needs to be done. We need to address it. And, but at least here on Guam, we got everybody talking about the crime issue. And just the other, maybe a couple of weeks ago, we had some, uh, someone break into a, an elderly uh, gentleman's home and beat him with a hammer. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's a horrible thing to have happen to, you know, to a loved one. And uh, how... Uh, how, how do you administer justice in that case? We need to be tough. We need to be courageous. We need to be brave. And we, we cannot keep coddling our, our, our criminals. Here on Guam, it's almost, it seems like it's lawlessness and, and we're being laughed at by the criminals because we have no courage to be tough and be strong enough and, uh, and, and initiate these programs that would actually help our community. So that's what I have. That's what I would have to say to them. Guam's justice system is it the same as the United States? Yes, sir. Yes, it's just the same as the United States. And and so our premise was: if in the United States there are 19 states that have corporal punishment legal to punish uh, school-aged children, 15 of those states actually do corporal punishment, and we see that uh, if corporal punishment is is permissible in schools to to uh, uh, rectify the wrong of a school-aged child. I'm pretty sure it would be good enough to rectify a, 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 an adult uh, found guilty of a of a heinous crime. What's your response to the criticism that this is inhumane, yeah. e- even from the UN and, and from the United States government, pr- um, primarily in the Western countries? But um, w- what's your response to that criticism? Well, 
let's take, for example, Singapore. It's one of the, probably the second, it is the second richest country in Asia. Uh, they actually still do corporal uh, punishment. They still do caning. And it's just an amazing place. It's a clean place. It's a very economically viable country to the world. They went from a, from a third world to a first world. They obviously see a value in it. And 5.4 million Singaporeans can't be wrong. Corporal punishment is a, is, a, is a necessary tool to administer justice and to keep, you know, keep, from, keep your society from crumbling. It says it in the Bible as well, you know, spare the rod, spoil the child. Since the West has adopted this thought of uh, thinking this, this type of punishment is cruel and unusual, our societies have gone, you know, uh, have, uh, have gone uh, to the criminals. I, I think it's 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 very important for us to 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 have this type of bill, to this this law, in order to to keep our society from crumbling and falling apart. One last question: Could you describe the support yeah. that you've received? Well, yes, I have, I have. So you know, here on here on Guam, we don't really. Uh, I, I'm not sure if people are really in tune to Singaporean uh, successes and. And the, and the criminal justice system in Singapore. So you know, it's it's an uphill battle here for me to to you know to try to educate the, the people about uh, about corporal punishment's place and uh in our in, in, and the importance to to place it into our judicial system. I've always said you know I'm, I'm also a businessman, so uh, you know I, I'm a result-driven uh, person. You know, you, you look you look for the, where where the results are at and. I feel that Singapore, you know, has the results, and they've been very good about it and very dignified in the process. And I, I think that's the thing that I'm trying to have the people here understand, that I'm not out to be vicious or, or vindictive. What I want to do is I want to give the judicial judiciary a, uh, an, another tool, you know, to keep law and order and, and peace and bring back respect to our island. I'm, I'm getting a lot of good, good response. Especially because here on Guam we have a, a high crime rate, you know, high violent crime rate. So that's where I'm going with this, and you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that it, it may pass. Us Pacific Islanders, we correct our people, you know. And uh, you know, as a child, my my dad would spank me, but at the end he would say, "I love you," and it was because you know I didn't want you to stray. And so I think as Pacific Islanders, we understand the importance of of corporal punishment on our kids because that's that's how we were able to. To keep our families tight, you know, based on respect, and and, and uh, that that's and and when we when we go away from what we normally do, you know, our, our society will will, will uh, notice the effects, and and that's why we're we're here with with all this crime is because we we've kind of like given up a little bit of who we are. That's Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us for free to your device from Spotify, iHeart or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Look at me for moi next time. <laughs>